The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Fire Lotus again, and to those of you that come, thank you for being here. So I've been hooked on Mara, Mara mind and Buddha mind. Mara is that aspect of us that knows what's good for us, and we turn away. And there's, it's in the tradition, and whether it's internal like it's something we do, or there's a Mara external. I think it can go both ways. You can study it. But I wanted to start with this um, poem that we may be familiar with from the Buddha that he wrote just immediately after his enlightenment. He writes, when he entered his true Dharma body, it's called House Builder, right? House Builder. Through countless births in the cycle of existence, I have run, not finding, although seeking, the builder of this house. And again and again, I face the suffering of new birth. Oh, house builder, now you are seen. You shall not build a house again for me. All your beams are broken, the ridge pole is shattered, the mind has become freed from conditioning, the end of craving has been reached. So Buddha may have been referring to Mara in this little poem as a metaphor for the entirety of our conditioned existence and this this dualistic being that we are of, of struggling with what's good for us, what's bad for us. And, um, you know, he speaks of desire, or in the poems of, of many of the people speaking with Mara. And desire, of course, we know can go either way. Some desires are really helpful. I mean, you wanted to practice. You came this morning. That's a great desire. <laughs> to want to sit on our seat, to be helpful to people, to give. These are good desires. And then some turn into a desire might be not helpful, a turn into craving, turn into grasping, addiction, um, where the desire just is, is, is turning against what we know is good for us. So this is our we have these both, both this Buddha mind and this Mara mind within us. So I just wanted to bring it out. <laughs> um, and how, like, through the breath, you know, we were working yesterday in a, a drawing class. Well, we use drawing kind of primarily, and our body, because all of that I'm going to speak to you to. Day about the Buddhist teachings 
need to go embody. Embody means into, in our physical form. It can't just be a head kind of thing. We can't be thinking about awakening or all any of these concepts. It's good to know about and have this information and know about the wheel of conditioned existence and how we create suffering. But ultimately, we know it's in our practice, in our embodiment, that we're going to have to work through these things. So we worked with this Anapasanadi Sutta, which is breathing with full awareness that the Buddha taught early on of knowing I am taking an in-breath, observing I am taking an out-breath, Observing, I am taking a short breath. Observing, I am taking a long breath. And there's 16 uh, in the process. One is, I observe that I am creating mental formations. I observe I am breathing out mental formations. So that we can see when Mara arrives. So... We know that this journey we're on takes us to very unknown territory. And there's a hunger to know what's true, to see things as they are. And because of these mind habits, which we get mad at our mind habits. It's like, it's okay. Like, so you see a habit, like why get mad at your mind? Just, can we lighten up a little? You know, it's like, oh, did that again. (laughs) You don't have to, like, be so, like, angry at yourself for repeating something. It's like, if you saw that, I am aware. I observe this mental formation happened, and we can breathe it in, breathe it out, work with it. But we keep returning to mostly what's familiar, which is the habit. And so practice is leaping out of what we usually do, right? So as we practice, we're changing pathways in our whole being that is very mysterious. We are very mysterious, but we're changing neuropathways. We're changing mind streams. We're changing our whole cellular makeup. The the habits we form did not start with us. That's, that's, what does that do for you? It gives me a little space. Like, we know that things didn't start with us, that things have passed down through so much, through the stars, through, it's so huge what comes into us. And then we have our family, and we know the DNA and what's happened in our own house and how we built it, the rafters, put it together. And Buddha's speaking about, I see how all of this was put together. I see this conditioning. And that's what he saw through. At the basis, we speak of things being empty, empty of any inherent fixed nature, not like an empty trash can, nothing. Just does, 
is not permanent, is not fixed in any way. Even though it may look that way, it's not. And we're just this contingent process, a contingency, moving, moving. But in our mind, what we've learned is there's inside, there's outside. We're defined by our conditions, our jobs, and these, and yet we live in that world so we can live in that freely if once we begin to understand that basis of everything, our true person, our true being, which is what the Buddha and the path is about to release that. So in the tradition, is Buddha, Buddha nature, Buddha mind. And Buddha, um, Mara stands for everything that paralyzes our innate wisdom, you know, that paralyzes our freedom, our empathy, whatever's blocking our path to life from opening our hearts fully, from being in our body, we could say is some, that we're meeting Mara. You know, I always say, like, okay, so you decided, some of you that are new, to come to the temple today. Did you meet Mara this morning? Why are you getting up at 7 o'clock to go to a temple? Do you really want to do this? Why? So we get this challenge in ourselves when it's like, the other day we were like, I'm going to a temple. I want to learn to meditate. There's that part of us. So then that duality starts to fight, Right? Should I stay or should I go? They had that song right. I really want to know. Should I stay or should I go? On and on. I think contingency is a really accurate um, translation of the Buddhist concept of dependent origination. Whatever is contingent is dependent upon something else for its existence. So there's only so much we can know, no matter how well life can be explained, how intelligent and well-informed. There's only so much we can reasonably claim to know with certainty. And Mara doesn't like uncertainty, which is true to life. We don't like that. So that's that habit of when we're uncertain, we'll reach for something certain that we think is certain that may just doesn't work for us. But we go back to it again. So we want to say, why am I doing that again? I know where where that goes. But it's because we know it, it's familiar, and it gives us a sense of certainty and stability until it doesn't, until we say, "Uh uh-uh, maybe not. And we leave that sort of open, whoa. (laughs) could be a little scary right there, right? Ungrounded. Like, uh, we're doing this Born as the Earth study. I don't know why this is coming to my mind, but I've been working with these water bugs I keep seeing in the Zendo. So we're taking up some part of nature that we just don't know about it. We see it all the time, and we go, like, I'm picking the ones that make me go, ugh, you know. And they're not so bad, the water bugs. But when they walk by in here with the lights, they look like Godzilla. (laughs) So they're not that big, but with the shadow, 
it's like you hear, then I impute and I'm like, boom, boom, boom. And then I see people sitting and they're going like, whoa, you know. So I'm trying to get to know them and see like, what are they really? Like, who are they? Who is this being that, that manifested? It's, it has a right to be here in such a way. Slugs are the other thing. So I've always had a relationship with slugs. Um, I had a teacher in pottery, and we tended the garden, and my job was to pull them off all the vegetables, <laughs> collect them in a yogurt jar, drive them a couple miles away, and move them to someone else's area. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I find them very fascinating. But the thing that really blew me away, first of all, they can live for up to two years, a slug, and that little slug, which is basically a snail with, with a mollusk without a shell, without a, like a thing on top, um, they come out at night because they don't like the sun. Some of us may be like that, maybe what we call each other slugs. But um, they have 27,000 teeth. Can you believe it? A, that thing that's slimy, that's just walking along, has... 27,000 teeth in a radial saw underneath its body. I'll stop there. <laughs> but just to say, we have complicated existences. And, <laughs> and from way back, we've got this brain and consciousness, and we, we struggle with this dualism, right? Dividing things up splitting things between our ideals and exactly as it is, things as they are. We face both. There's two paths in front of us, and we take one, and the other disappears, and then again, path, two paths appear. And it's said that the Buddha remained aware of these thoughts and feelings. It wasn't that they no longer occurred to him, but rather than deleting them, he discovered a way of being with them by which he could gain, they could gain no purchase on him. So um, Stephen Batchelor has this wonderful book called uh, Living with the Devil. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of Flip Wilson, I think it was. He used to say, the devil made me do it. And I was thinking about that. Is that true? Like the devil in us or outside made us do it. Yes and no. So there may be a force that turns us away, but that's where, where our awareness and why awareness is so important is because it comes in and it can interrupt and make different choices, that we have choice, right? We have choice. And maybe you can say, no, we don't, but there are certain ways we consciously can like decide to move in a, our energy in a particular way, if you want to just call it that. So Stephen Batchelor has this piece of this dance with Buddha mind and Mara mind that I wanted to share, because he says it's so good, I can't say it better. <laughs> he says, Buddha and Mara are figurative ways of portraying a fundamental opposition with human natures. While Buddha stands for a capacity for awareness, openness, and freedom, Mara represents a capacity for confusion, closure, and restriction. 
when we have Mara mind operating. To live with the devil is to live with the perpetual conflict between one's Buddha nature and one's Mara nature. So take that in. Can you feel that struggle in us to, to that with the conflict of our Buddha nature and our Mara nature? I can. I surely can. When Buddha nature prevails, fixations ease and the world brightens, revealing itself as empty, contingent, and fluid. When Mara nature dominates, fixations tighten and the world appears opaque, necessary, and static. We feel necessary. William Blake evokes a similar opposition in the marriage of heaven and hell. He says, if the doors of perception are cleansed, everything would appear to a person as it is, infinite, infinite. For a person has closed themselves up until they see all things will be through narrow chinks of their cavern. Right? So I think that's like practice keeps, that has that Buddha mind, Mara mind opening and closing like a valve where we, it opens to us to this infinite and we can feel that, that opening just and how things become clear and, and not opaque. And then in the next moment it could come in restricted, right? Like it has that pulsation. Buddha nature and Mara nature are inseparable. Like a valve, they can either be opened or closed. And we have the capacity to unfold Buddha or to shut down Mara. So the the Sanskrit term for nature is garbha. Remember we learned tathagata garbha? Garbha means womb. Womb. Buddha nature is like a womb, a womb. It's empty, warm, fertile space from which we're born, from which we're born out of that warmth. My womb-like nature suggests that I am not the necessary static self I feel myself to be, but this contingent creature with an extraordinary but often untapped capacity for growth and change. My Mara nature, however, is that side of me that compulsively resists such transformation, refuses to be touched and impregnated with any ideas other than my own, its own certainties, and stubbornly clings to the illusion of being a frozen and isolated self. I think he says it so clearly. Or Buddha nature stands for that open perspective that is in which we're free um, to respond to the call of others. And Mara nature stands for fixed positions that prompt us to react. While a perspective allows the possibility of pursuing a path into the unknown, A position ensures that we never stray from the territory we've staked out. So can you feel in yourself when you have a fixed position or just a perspective? 
the openness of having a perspective allows a lot more to be swinging, moving. But a fixed position, that's the wall, right? What was once a perspective can crystallize into a position. Convinced that you were moving ahead, you find that you have only traced another circle. So, I love Mara. (laughs) I love my Mara mind. And I do see my Mara mind as a bodhisattva um, because it, it, it really shows me where I need to develop sometimes. And it's hard to... I have to grapple with it. And I think that happens in art. Like, we could see it yesterday in a way. It's the same thing in the, in the creative process, which is our life, that same grapple of how we may want to express, like a drawing or an instrument. And then there's this struggle with Mara, who's saying, like, what do you think you're doing? That's not, that doesn't look like a tree. You think you can draw? put that down. Like, go find something else to do. And then Buddha mind comes in and says, this is really fun. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to enjoy this. And you could see, I could watch that in people just happen. And in myself, you know, I'm in the middle of a painting and suddenly Mara comes out. Why make another thing? What does this world need? Why do you have to make another piece to put in the world? Be, give birth to another shape. And I'm like, yeah, damn straight. Step outside. <laughs> We're going for it. So that Mara mind might be firing exactly what we need to see clearly. We can take it that way when we, that arises us and open to it, like I said, to find the freedom in what's arising. It's already here. But this didn't pop into our mind. It comes from something some long stream of conditioning that we think that way. could, And if we trace it, it could be in our, there was someone in our family who was like fixed and it just got passed down. And we're like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't feel fixed, but I do. And who else knows what else formed that? So Thurman actually said in the Vimala Kirti Sutra, Mars are said to be bodhisattvas dwelling in inconceivable liberation, playing the devil, as it were, to develop living beings. Mars is a friend. And I can say by my own experience, trying to suppress that part of my mind or project it onto others, it doesn't work. It's really calming down. Um, In the fullness of breath, I can calm down breathing in. In the fullness of breathing, I can calm down breathing out to clearly recognize, understand if there is a destructive inhibiting energy present that's welling up, that's trying to assail me. But if I'm stirred, it's just, it's reacting, right? So in practice, We know how to breathe to like, okay, I can calm down. I can see the mental formation. I can examine and observe what's going on and then see which way to take it. Buddha too found and taught this. Embrace the very stuff of life that we think will destroy us. Embrace, embody, 
that embrace, that womb. Make more contact with the fluidity that it actually is. It's fluid. It's not fixed. So try and make contact with that fluidity. It comes more as we practice, and you're just working with your breath like you did this morning. You start to can see that what thoughts are and how they freeze, put the freeze on to the contingency of our life. So I wanted to share with you some of these early encounters with Buddha and Mara. And I'll end with one. We're studying this ango, some of the assails on the uh, women ancestors, which seem to be like in almost a good many of their poems, their enlightened poems. So I'll, I'll end with that. So here is, um, you know, and Buddha said Mara was traveling right by his side all through his entire life. That was a little consolation. Like, okay, so you saw everything, and you were still worried about Mara, like that part of him, right? So that was kind of consoling. Anyway, there's an early discourse called The Striving. And this is when he was still Siddhartha. Okay, I'll call him Sid. (laughs) So he was practicing asceticism. After six years of his vigorous practice, Buddha went into the river to bathe. And afterwards, he could only crawl to the shade of a tree. Offered food, he ate. That was by a young woman, by the way. That saved his life, offering food. He was nearly dead. And he began to recover strength while sitting there, engaged in a deep struggle practicing meditation with all my strength in the effort to find freedom. Mara came to tempt me, whispering in my ear, You look so exhausted. Your chance of achieving enlightenment is only one out of a hundred. You are so thin and pale. You must be nearly dead. It would be far better for you to live. You could, go, you could do much by leading a holy life. You better get up and take care of your body. What's wrong with that? Is that a a devil? In the end, what Buddha found was that body and mind are inseparable, one inseparable entity. They differ from each other, but without one, the other cannot exist. So he quit observing his existence as a dualism and turned to diligent, earnest, continuous practicing guiding him to the purpose of his life. So that starvation was not it, that dualism. He recognized that he needed the body to do what Mara said, and he ended that because of Mara. Mara appears to have Buddha's best interest, our best interests at heart. That part of us has our best interest at heart. But isn't it amazing how it can get right to our soft spot? Like, we know exactly the part to get to. (laughs) We say it to ourselves, right to what we need. Always seeming really rationable and reasonable, right? Mara is not encouraging us to create harm. The aim is to weaken our our resolve where we want to be free. Mara attacks Buddha, who wants to practice 
and be free from grasping and cravings. And he now, he now sees that trap him in cycles of being stressed out and anxious. That's for us. Also, it's interesting to take note, trees. Like so many of the places people went to meditate and what helped them to sit was nature. Trees especially. And some of us, I see shaking our heads, may have had this rela- have this relationship to trees because they're so rooted, such tall, noble ancestors. Um, they really know how to bend and be flexible, otherwise they're going to break. So a lot of times people went to the foot of a tree because there was some resonance with that. And we want that. We seek, right, to go to a river, a mountain, um, because it does something to our embodiment. It reminds us who we are. Um, uh, Let me see if I have... You can see I have a nice little stack here. Um, Yeah, did you ever read The Legacy of Luna? Um, So Luna was this... this, um, Redwood, redwood tree in California that member Julia Butterfly sat in it for a year because they wanted to cut down the redwoods. They wanted to do clear cutting. So she went up, didn't intend to sit for it in a year, but she did. But she wrote this beautiful piece about trees in a storm because she was up there with her her all, she, they sent her up like she had a, a printer. It's like these people at, at like on Mount Everest that like ground at the like first like level. They, they bring their printers, like they're doing office work. I'm like, on Mount Everest? Like, go away. <laughs> like, don't bring the office up there. But apparently people do at the first base. But she had all this stuff up there because, you know, she was doing work too. But, and so this, this hurricane was coming, and she was like, things started flapping, her tent, everything she had, her dishes are like flying, and she said, the trees in the storm don't stand up straight and tall and erect. They allow themselves to bend and be blown with the wind. They understand the power of letting go. And so she she tuned into Luna, the tree, to understand this. She knew she had to let go. Those trees and those branches that try hard to stand up, strong and straight, are the ones that break. So she heard this voice speaking to her as she's up there, from the tree, she said, which said, now it is time for you to be strong, Julia, or you too will break. Learn the power of the trees. Let it flow. Let it go. That is the way you're going to make it through the storm. And that is the way to make it through the storms of life. She said she understood. She was getting chucked over, cut up, just tossed by the wind, left and right. And she said, I just got to let go. You know, it's like us, again, reaching for that thing to shore up the certainty. She was like, got to hold all this down, right? Eventually, like our last breath, that's it, letting go. 
I have to let my muscles go. I have to let my jaw unlock. I let the wind blow and the craziness flow. Right? You're sitting there. Let your jaw unlock. Be flexible. Let the winds of our things blow through. Just stay straight, right? Breathe. Let the craziness blow through. I bent and flailed with it, just like the trees, which flail in the wind. I howled, I laughed, I hooped and cried and screamed and raged. I hollered and I gibbered and I jabbered. Whatever came through me, I let it go. So I recommend, if you can find a quiet place, to let it go. (laughs) To gibber, to jabber, to rage, to let the earth hold you. I, whenever came through me, I just let it go. She said, when my time comes, I'm going to die grinning. I yelled. Everything around me was ripped apart. My sanity felt like I was slipping. It was slipping through my fingers like a runaway rope. And I just gave in. Fine. I don't know if you've ever did this. Take it all. Did you ever do that to the sky? Just fine. Just take it all, okay? Take it all. I give up. I surrender. I can't hold up. And to trust that, right? It's a real thing. And once the storm ended, she said, I realized that by letting go of all attachments, I don't know about that, including my attachment to self, probably a big chunk. (laughs) I don't know. She became like Shakyamuni in that moment. People and things no longer had a certain power over me. They could, they could take my life if they felt the need, but I was no longer going to live my life out of fear, the way too many people do, jolted by our disconnected society. I was going to live my life guided by the higher source, the creation source, whatever that is for each of us. I had to be pummeled. I had to be pummeled by Mother Nature until I saw hope, active hope. I went crazy and finally I let go. Only then could I be rebuilt. Interesting. Only then could I be filled back up with who I was meant to be. And I don't think she means that in It's kind of like the Buddha. It's not like she built a new house. Those rafters were ripped, (laughs) right? And that's part of why she liked her name Butterfly, because you go into that cocoon of darkness, and then you have to come out a new being, entirely new being. So in the tradition, of course, the trees, Shakyamuni was born, under a tree with his mother Maya, a sal tree. In the Lambuni Grove, he became enlightened under the Bodhi tree. At the end of his life, he passed away between, I actually saw these, these sal trees where he died, a grove of sal trees. So zazen is an act of embodying the teaching of Buddha to embody to sit down with our body and mind upright and go and open as a flower does, as a tree does. So while speaking to Sid, Morris stood right by him, 
And that, yeah, feels like it's attached to our body, right? This, this little devil in us seems to be thinking us and be in our body. And Buddha recognized Mara and said, I see your troops all around me, Mara. I will proceed with the struggle, even if the whole world cannot defeat your army. I will destroy it with the power of my wisdom, just as an unfired pot is smashed by a stone. So we sit and connect with our breath, letting go of the desperate, obsessive grip on self to know it doesn't obliterate us, but opens us up to that fleeting, highly contingent world with other anxious creatures just like us. And it can be frightening, as I said at first, when that, when that starts to happen in our practice. Who doesn't want to scurry back to what's familiar? I do. So, on the night the Buddha was to attain enlightenment, he sat under the tree, and while he was sitting there, Mara's forces came and shot arrows at him to distract him from becoming enlightened. And he turned their weapons into flowers. So I'm going to skip down, but he says, um, one of his famous lines is, I know your name. So that's what he said. You turn to that that thing that seems to be blocking and said, I know your name. When we recognize it again and again, I know your name, right? Don't even think otherwise. It's said that, When he said that, Mara, in the striving, Mara shook his head, lulled his tongue, knit his brow into furrows, and departed, leading on his staff. On another occasion, he went away from the spot and sat down cross-legged on the ground not far from Buddha, silent, dismayed, with his shoulders drooping, downcast, brooding, unable to speak, scratching with a stick in the ground. Mara was defeated. So I'll just briefly go through this for the sake of time, and you can look up. Just Pema Chodron um, teaches what we call obstacles are really the way the world and our entire experience teach us where we're stuck, kind of what I've been saying. She says, what may appear to be an arrow or a sword, we can actually experience as a flower. How we experience what happens to us as an obstacle, an enemy, a teacher, a friend, depends entirely on how we perceive, on our perceptions. Depends on our relationship with ourselves, how we understand what this is. Who are we? What do we call the self? So she teaches four maras, which I find helpful as descriptions and ways we do this. And I was just like, oh, yes, that's great. I recognize that. So she has the Devaputra Mara, where we're seeking pleasure and avoiding pain, and we're addicted to that pursuit. That's a Mara. Okay, so you'll find these in yourself. We reach again and again for something to blot out the pain or numb it away, the Devaputra Mara aspect. We, we could even meditate to avoid it. 
So the flower is t- using that energy to, to sit with and lowering it into our, our, our being, into our part of us that's loving, that can hold it, right? And get out of our spin in the head. That's how we turn it to a flower, meet the sensation of it. There's the skandamara where she says, when things fall apart, instead of taking the opportunity to open up to that, we go and close off again and find some solid ground to stand on by recreating our self-concept of who we are. She says, touching, then the flower is to just touch into, touching, touching into that mind of simply not knowing, which is our basic wisdom mind, prajna, the emptiness that we may not know yet, but it's there. It's the, the, we know this non-fixedness, whether we realize it or see it yet, it will come. But it, since that's who we are, we, we will find it. We can rest in that not knowing. And that's our basic wisdom mind, prajna paramita, heart sutra. Kleshamara is a simple feeling that arises, turns into a strong emotion, right? So we have a simple feeling, and then we just draw everything into it, and now it's an emotion, a strong emotion. And then we add, of course, there's a storyline. And sometimes we even blow on the flames. So... In, the, in their essence, she said, emotions are simply part of the goodness of being alive. But instead of letting them be, we take them and use them to regain our ground. Right? You have to really look at that. We turn our emotions into flowers by seeing the wildness of them and beginning to befriend and soften towards ourselves. And then we can soften to others who are also having strong emotions. They're just like us. Everyone has it. But there's that subtlety of just like, isn't that great? I love that. Like really appreciating our wildness. And Yamamara, the fear of death, but actually the fear of life. To be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake, she says, is to continually be thrown out of the nest. To live fully is to be always in no man's land, no person's land, I will say. To experience each moment as completely new and fresh. So to live is to be willing to die over and over again, moment to moment, right? Thought arises, we die to it, we let go, we stop perpetuating it, and we just let it die, let it die out. That's living and dying moment to moment, not recreating ourself in that thought that recreates us. From an awakened point of view, she says, that's life. Death is wanting to hold on to what we have and to have every experience confirm us and congratulate us and make us feel completely together. So Mara's temptation Mara mind is something very familiar in our experience. We see Mara is not necessary. Mara mind is not necessarily bad or good. This life has many needs, desires, without which we can't be sustained. 
Hunger tells us we want some food. Thirst tells us we want some water. We desire water. Without sleep, an army of an exhaustion, dullness, denseness, sleepiness comes. Sexual desire, where does it go over to being harmful? And where is it wholesome? We desire to sit zazen, to have relationships, be known by others. That's all Mara. Nothing is wrong with these needs. We just have a, an army inside us, if you want to call it, use that metaphor. What shall we do? This we can work with. So I wanted to end with uh, a chant by um, a Theragatha, a woman <coughs> ancestor, Kala. Um, and Kala was, um, there was, th- there was three sisters, Siska, Kala, I forgot the, the one of them's name, maybe somebody knows, and Kala. They were all sisters of Shariputra, who was the Buddha's um, disciple, his, one of his chief disciples. These are his three sisters who became renunciates. In, in Kala's per- poem, there's, she speaks about this fixed views. She mentions views, so as a central message. All those outside the way depend on views. He taught me the way, the complete overcoming of views. So a view is a belief, a dogma, a theory, a religious um, teaching or ideology. And Kala wants to choose the right view. So she follows Buddhist teaching of non-attachment to any fixed belief or position. Okay? So uh, these, Theragatha means Tara, means Thera, means elder um, nun's poem. And Theragatha is the elder uh, men's poems as well. So I'm going to chant this because they were chanted. I'm going to use my shruti box and uh, give you a little taste of Tara, of Kala's. Poem. Now, this is her enlightenment poem. Okay. The first stanza is Kala, then Mara comes in. I'll, I'll try to change the sound a little bit. And then it, go back, it goes back to her. I, a nun, trained and self-composed, established mindfulness and entered peace like an of body and mind grew still happiness came who told you to shave your head you look like a renunciant to me why do you practice this nonsense all those 
Those outside the way depend on views. They don't know the Dharma. They have no real understanding. But in the Shakya clan, the unrivaled Buddha was born. He taught me the way, the complete overcoming of views. Pain, the cause of pain, the end of pain, and the great eightfold way that stills all pain. When I heard these words, I rejoiced. The three knowledges have been realized. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed. The great dark is torn apart and death you too are destroyed Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.